This podcast is brought to you by the marketing team of DePaul University's Department of Finance. Hello, this is Stuff You Should Know About Finance, a podcast that uncovers and explains financial topics and related current or historical events into more understandable terms by our featured guests. I am your student host, Demita Menezes. I am a journalism major at DePaul University, and I don't really know much about finance. With the help of the marketing team at DePaul University's Department of Finance, this podcast brings together finance professors and industry professionals with finance students to break down real-world examples. If you want to gain financial literacy, such as myself, keep up with financial discussions or learn about finance courses at DePaul, tune into Stuff You Should Know About Finance. Stay updated with us by checking out our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn by searching DePaul Finance. Hello everyone and welcome to the third episode of Stuff You Should Know About Finance, a podcast that talks about financial topics with someone financey. I'm your host, Demira Menezes, joined today with fellow DePaul student Hannah Judson. Hannah, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, for sure. I am a senior business administration major here at DePaul. Um, I have a double minor in economics and sociology. And in the fall, I'm headed into a an economic sociology PhD program um, at Stony Brook University. And I'm, I'm very excited about that. Yeah. And Hannah, you also work for the finance department as a marketing specialist. So. Yes, that is correct. I am a marketing specialist extraordinaire for the finance department. Great. Thank you, Hannah. And we also have with us finance professor and doctoral student. Hello, Professor Mark. Hello. So, Professor, you do a lot. And I'm going to try and summarize as much as I can of what you do. So, Professor Shore is a well-known expert on alternative investments with more than 30 years of experience in the capital markets and is currently the Director of Educational Research at CoQuest Advisors. He also served as Chief Operating Officer at VK Capital, Head of Risk at Octane Research and Founder and Chief Research Officer at Shore Capital Research, LLC. He also consults on alternative investments, conducts educational workshops, shops, webinars, and is frequently invited to speak at investment conferences. And that's one of the reasons why we have you today here. This is a podcast and we're talking about alternative investments. So let's cut to the chase. Professor, in a basic sense, what is an alternative investment? So an alternative investment, if you think about initially, what's a traditional investment, right? Stocks, bonds are considered traditional investments. What's outside of that? So alternatives then would be hedge funds, managed futures, commodities, currencies, private equity, infrastructure, real estate, intellectual property. Things go on and on from there, but that's a large component of it. Um, And so you're really saying, how is it different from the traditional, right? So stocks, bonds, historically people go long stocks, they go long bonds. If you look at hedge funds, hedge funds and managed futures is primarily the area that I focus on, and more specifically, Within hedge funds, it's global macro, which is also similar to managed futures. Um, So within hedge funds, you will have the managers who can trade long and short, whereas, say, a mutual fund, they're only trading long. They may use futures to in a mutual fund to offset or to hedge some of the things they're doing, but really what they're doing is to be long their portfolio, long equities. So with, with hedge funds, they can trade They can be long and short in equities. They can also trade fixed income. They can trade commodities, currencies. They can do on exchange, they can do off exchange. So there's 
it's a wide spectrum of what can be done. So when you say long, what do you mean by that? They're, you know, trading long? Yeah, so there's two terms that are commonly used, being long and being short. Long means you bought, let's say you bought a stock, right? You buy it at $10, you want it to go to $20. The other side of that is to go short. And let's say you think a stock is going to go down. So you short it. Let's say you short it at $20, thinking it's going to go down to 10 So that's the long short. And when you said futures, what is a future? So futures contracts, it's, it's actually, it's a very interesting area. And being here in Chicago, you could say this is the global hub of the futures industry. So a futures contract, if you think about it, it is a contract in and of itself. It trades on an exchange. You have, think of it as a derivative because it's derived from an underlying asset. Let's say corn, right? So you have a contract for corn and then it trades in certain months or expirations. So you'll get March, uh, May, July, September, December months, right? So the idea is that if you buy it at $4, $4 a bushel because it's quoted per bushel, and then you're thinking it's going to go up to maybe $5, right? So, But there's an expiration month, and you're basically saying, what is it going to be at some future price? Because ultimately, these are for deliverable purposes, for hedging purposes. So it's always about what it is in the future. That's why it's called a futures contract. Now, there's a little bit of history behind this, which is actually kind of interesting, because you can go back to about easily a thousand years ago or more, where in various cultures, they traded something that was similar to this, or they used it to lock in prices between farming and, and for trade and things. If you go into the Middle Ages, the fairs they would have, they would do things like this as well. And they would actually fix currency prices there. They would have something similar to like a back office clearing or operations at these fairs, but it was ways to lock in prices. In Japan, about 1697 or so, there was probably known first futures exchange or similar to what we know it to be today. I'm in Osaka, Japan, for rice futures. That exchange continued until about 1939. Up until that point, that was considered the world's oldest futures exchange. And then you come to the U.S. So um, you could use the Chicago Board of Trade as the example of what was happening in the futures exchanges here. Prior to about 18, was it 1849 or so, farmers would bring their crops to market. Chicago is becoming a very popular place for shipping and, and for trade of, of ag markets. And they would bring it to Chicago. They would try and sell it. If they couldn't sell it, they would sometimes dump it in Lake Michigan. They would put it on fire. There was a shortage of storage. There was a shortage of shipping. So there's a lot of volatility of pricing that went on. So a group of farmers and merchants got together and started the Chicago Board of Trade. And that was the beginning steps of it. Somewhere around 1860, 1865, it started to turn into what we know today as a futures contract, where it was more standardized. There was specifications to the contracts. By mid-1800s, late-1800s, there were dozens of exchanges around the country. They were usually in places that were shipping hubs, you know, so it would either be railroad or be a lake, river, something like that. So it'd be easy to access. And, and so eventually this just continued. They were all commodity markets. Uh, 19, about 1972, the CME started uh, currency contracts. Actually, there was an exchange in New York. Very few people know about that tried to do a currency contract around 1970-71. That didn't work. However, the CME got it to work. It took them probably about four years to work out the specs and really find their market. And once they did, it took off. 
late 70s, the Chicago Board of Trade started the bond futures, and then you start to see more financial futures contracts occur. It's interesting to hear because, you know, in classes at DePaul, you learn about all of these things and how they work now. But I have never heard anyone talk about the history that goes on behind that and how, you know, as humans, we've been essentially doing the same thing. We've just made it more efficient with our technology, but it's the same concept. And I think that's super, super cool. Yeah. So why would investors seek out an alternative investment? So ideally what they're looking for is to add a component to their portfolio that's non-correlated or has less correlated to their traditional investments. Hedge funds, you have to really break it down by strategy to see where they are more correlated to equities and where they're less correlated. This is actually some research that I presented at a couple of conferences last year talking about this. We're looking at it strategy by strategy. There are some that may have a correlation that's 0 0.6, 0 0.7, 0 0.8 to equities. If that's what your goal is, what you're doing then is you're extending your equity exposure into those strategies. But if you are looking for something that's non-correlated, there's some strategies that will do that that will have independent returns or more independent returns from what you're going to get in equities. And so that's ideally what the investor is looking for. They're trying to diversify their portfolio because if you have everything that is correlated, when it's all moving in the same direction and it's, you know, moving the way you want it to, that's great. You're making money. But then there's the other side of it, right? That's all highly correlated and heading south. But just to clarify, again, what exactly is a hedge fund? So a hedge fund, you can think of it as a private structure where you're going to have investors in there that usually tend to be high net worth, institutional investors. And within this structure, there's a fee structure that goes into it. Usually, It's often referred to as a 2 and 20 fee structure, 2% management fee, 20% incentive fee. However, over the years, that has been coming down, but they have that kind of fee structure in there. So what makes it a bit different from, say, a mutual fund is that with a mutual fund, you're not going to have that incentive fee in there. So what it means is that incentivizes the manager to make money on the upside, right? When the investor's making money, then the manager also gets a piece of that as well. So, but yeah, these private structures... They are exempt from a lot of regulations that mutual funds will have. A lot of them do trade equities. They'll do various strategies with equities or with fixed income. Then some will do it with currencies and commodities. So we've talked about the basics of sort of investments, alternative investments, hedge funds, et cetera. And you mentioned that one type of alternative investment is currency. And I know this isn't necessarily your area of expertise, but I am really curious because we have this whole trendy cryptocurrency thing now and everyone's, you know, all about Bitcoin or, you know, whatever else, whatever celebrity has created their own currency, you know, this week. Um, <laughs> but there's also been some conversations happening about legislation and regulating cryptocurrency, which might not affect alternative investments if they say, well, cryptocurrency is one type or the other, that sort of thing. But what's the role of cryptocurrency and that sort of related legislation on alternative investments? Like how might that impact other alternative investments? That's a really good question. A lot of people are asking that same question and also trying to figure out what the answer is. The crypto, so I mean, if you think about it, currencies usually they represent a country, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're distributed from a country. It represents, the country is kind of like the background of, of, of the fundamental of that currency. Here, you don't have that, right? There's nothing that it's actually representing. There's a lot of trading that goes on. From the regulators, uh, CFTC has said, well, 
you could consider them a commodity, and so it should fall under their regulation. SEC has said, well, maybe they're securities because when people have, when companies have issued them, they've used it to raise money. So it's doing like private equity, but mm-hmm. doing it publicly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of discussion as to what's going on. Where it stands at the moment, that's a really good question. There is a congressman, Bill Foster from Illinois, mm-hmm. who heads up the fintech uh, committee in Congress or in, in the House, and I've seen him speak here in Chicago a couple of times. And he's talking about, you know, they're they're talking about several different ideas mm. as far as regulation goes. He's a Democrat, and along with Republican, they sent a letter to the Fed saying they would like to see a digital currency for the U.S. I know Sweden, I think, is testing that mm-hmm. as well. Other countries have talked about doing it, but as far as where regulations are, it's it's a mixed bag of things. It's like work in progress. Yeah, for sure. Well, because it's interesting, you mentioned like, yeah, a lot of currencies they're backed by a sovereign nation. That's what gives them, you know, any meaning to people. Whereas most cryptocurrencies are not. And so to create a cryptocurrency would mean that now it's backed by a government and that sort of fundamentally changes the way that we interact with it, no? It could. So, yeah, if a country actually put it out, yeah, it would be basically say, well, it's the dollar, but it's digital. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sweden had talked about doing it because about, I don't know, 90, 95 percent of all their transactions are credit cards anyhow. Mm. So why not just start moving that direction to a digital currency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's lots of talk about that, how that actually happens, when it happens, who knows. Right, it's all up in the air. Yeah. Well, what about, so are you familiar with Libra? With Facebook? Yeah, I'm with just, fa- Facebook just a, and their whole just a little bit. <laughs> cohort of related businesses who've gone in on a currency of their own. What happens when private corporations create currency? How does that change? You know, in terms of alternative investments, would a currency created by a private corporation or a currency backed by a sovereign nation, which would be a better, is there a better alternative investment? Is there, you know, what are the impacts on the background of each of those on their sort of saliency in the in the market? Well, if you think about it, cryptos, they are issued by companies. They're coming out from there. So the question is, well, what are countries going to do? One of the issues, too, is that how these cryptocurrencies are being used, right? Are they used for legal purposes? Are they being used for illegal purposes, right? So um, that's one of the concerns governments around the world have. Um, Obviously, if you go to a digital currency, there could be better ways to track things, too, for better or for worse, depending on how you look at that. Do you consider it an alternative investment? I don't know. These are all these questions that are really kind of bubbling up these days and people are trying to figure out what it is. And, you know, and coming back to how the regulators look at it, do you define it as a security or do you define it as a commodity? Mm -hmm. And some people in, in the crypto world will say, no, it's neither. So you have this back and forth debate going on. What are so like obviously when investing you want to have a, as diverse a portfolio as possible. But are there any drawbacks to including alternative investments in a in a diversified portfolio and and what might those be? Sure, it's like any investment, right? Mm-hmm. You've got your pros and cons. So one of the major cons that people will look at are the drawbacks is that when you compare it to equities, how does it compare to equities? We've had several years of really good run in equities, right? So then you have investors looking at alternatives and going, well, they may be you know, making some money, but they're not doing as well as equities are. I had the same situation 
in the late 90s when I was working for Morgan Stanley. And I would travel around the country with the wholesalers doing education for the advisors and for their clients. And in the late 90s, equities were rallying like crazy, double digits. And, you know, we had people saying, what do we need you guys for? You know, we're diversified. I've got technology stocks, healthcare stocks, financial stocks. Then 2000, 2001 rolled around. All of a sudden, the phone was ringing, and people mm-hmm. were like, yeah, can you come out and talk to us about diversification? I'm like, sure, try to do that several years ago. <laughs> we're happy to do that again. <laughs> um, but that's the idea. You never, no one has a crystal ball, right? You never mm-hmm. know when things are going to happen. I mean, look what's been happening in the last couple of weeks right. because of the virus. Right. Yeah, I was going to actually ask you about that. I've been like, reading a lot in the news about how futures and hedge funds are kind of affected. Is that, how does that work? Because mm-hmm. of the virus? Yeah. yeah. So they can be affected both positively and negatively. It depends. So coming back to hedge funds, you have a lot of different strategies. Some are highly correlated to equities. Those are probably going to get hit more, looking more like the returns you're getting in equities right now, right? You have this drawdown, this, these losses. Um, you'll get some of the ones like managed futures, global macro, a few others that are actually, they're making money in this period. Similar to what happened during the crisis. Like Managed Futures was one of the few products that was actually making money in that time period. Because mm-hmm. it was non-correlated, they can go long, they can go short. Currencies, commodities, financial futures. You get this point where it's like there's a choppiness happening either at the top or the bottom. Then some of these products don't work so well. But once you start that tipping, once it goes over, that's when you can start to see movement happen and some of these managers that's when they're making their money so there's where the diversification comes in right and so you know i'm looking at what's going on the last couple of weeks part of what i also do with my research um i work with urex exchange and also with cboe so they have their vix contract and their vstax contract volatility indices one of the things i look at is a spread between vstax and vix and vstax tends to stay at a premium to vix means that it's at a higher price to vix normally On occasion, it will go to a discount. This past few days, it's been at a discount. So my view is that is actually an indicator. You probably have a lot of panic selling coming into the market, real fast selling. Interesting. So I want to ask you a little bit about your research. You mentioned it briefly, and you talk about managed futures and global macro. Can you explain the difference between those? I understand it's pretty subtle, if I understand correctly. Can you tell us about the difference between those things and then also the research that you're working on here as a doctoral student? So between global macro and hedge funds, global macro is considered a hedge fund strategy. They're often discretionary in nature, which means it's judgment. It's looking at fundamental information. They can trade basically anything on and off exchange. They can use any of the hedge fund strategies that they want, but they tend to take a bigger view of the world, right? So therefore, macro, right? Global macro. But they are similar to CTAs or managed futures. Oh, here's the other thing too. Managed futures, another name for that, commodity trading advisor, often referred to as a CTA, not to be confused with the Chicago Transit Authority. (laughs) And that does happen. Um, (laughs) Wow, there's only room for one CTA in my heart. I'm sorry. It's it's the trains. So, yeah, so you have these CTAs, right, and managed futures. They are highly regulated. They're regulated by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and the National Futures Association. So those are the two regulators that oversee them, whereas with hedge funds, there's a lot less regulation in there. With managed futures, they trade on exchange futures contracts. They can also trade currencies off exchange, and that's primarily it. Now, within that, there's several different things they can do. A lot of them are what's referred to as trend followers, meaning you know, you're looking for it, you buy it at $20, and you're looking for something to go to 60 right? You maybe follow it over a period of weeks or 
period of months. You can have intraday traders, right? They're in and out and they go flat. They're out of their position by the end of the day. You'll have some that are purely systematic. So it's algorithms, it's computerized. You'll have some that are discretionary. And then what's referred to as a gray box, it's kind of a hybrid between the two. The systematic managers are also often known as a black box because the idea is, well, the investors don't really know what's in it. However, you can look at that and say, well, that's actually, it's, you can understand a systematic manager better than you can a discretionary manager because systematic, all it is is rule-based. That, mm. That's literally all it is. Given by the name, systematic. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> yes, and just plugged into a computer. That's mm -hmm. really all it is. I mean, you can go back to the early days of Dow Jones, Dow Theory, 1800s. That was rule-based. Mm -hmm. People don't think of that being systematic, but it is. So that's primarily the, the, the two differences. So Chicago being the global hub for futures, a lot of the CTAs are here in Chicago. And this is really closely related to the research you're doing. I mean, you've been doing research your entire career, essentially, um, and publishing for various things, textbooks and articles and that sort of thing. But can you talk a little bit more specifically about the thesis you're working on, your dissertation? My dissertation I'm doing for the DBA program, I'm looking at managed futures and, and hedge funds, and I'm comparing them by asset size, what's referred to as AUM, assets under management. The hypothesis is that there is an added value to go into the smaller managers over the larger managers. There's more benefits, potentially more upside to it, more returns. The drawdowns might be less. So there are things along those lines. And, and looking at it, there's some behavioral aspects to it too. But really what I'm focusing on is just you have a ton of money going into a handful of managers. Is that really the best place for them to be? Or should they be spreading their diversification within hedge funds and managed futures to some of the smaller ones? I mean, you could say, well, instead of writing one big check to one manager, take the same amount of dollars, carve it up to several small checks, and invest in several small managers and create a pool of small managers. And then you may get better benefits out of that. So that's what I'm looking at now. And okay. um, hopefully I'll have the results. Where and how can students start working with alternative investments? So there's several, several different ways and how they find out about the jobs too, things along those lines. So once again, being here in Chicago, you have CTAs, you have hedge funds. There are what's referred to as prop firms or proprietary trading firms, which may look like a hedge fund or a CTA, but they're just trading for their own money, for the house's money, opposed to trading for customers' money. Where you can find out about these jobs, one is, I mean, you can just literally just go around and, and, and talk to firms. There's also a lot of conferences that happen. I, I tell my students about some of them that go on throughout the year. You network, you just you know, you find people to talk to at these things. Um, the exchanges have a lot of conferences. And in the industry, some of these conferences are free. Some are cheap. Some are expensive. But, you know, um, what I'll tell my students, obviously, if it's free, go. Hmm. It's cheap, go. A lot of these conferences also need volunteers. And in some cases, I know the organizers. And so I'll tell my students, like, if you want to volunteer there, that's a great way to meet the entire conference, right? And so I'll introduce them to people to the organizers of the of the conferences. You can also go on to websites. There's oh there's a designation called Kaya, Chartered Alternative Investment Analyst. Some would say it's like the CFA for alternative investments. It's been around for close to 20 years. And you go onto their website, they have job postings on there. Bloomberg Terminals, a lot of people don't know this. And it's these are some of the workshops I'm doing in the finance lab for for showing the students how to navigate Bloomberg. But within that, there is a, a, a page on there that has job postings. 
Mm-hmm. You can also post your your profile or your resume on there. There is there's another organization I'm involved with called NEBA, National Introducing Brokers Association. They have a few events a year. We hold one here at DePaul, usually in the summer. I think this year it's going to be in July. About 100 people show up. It's great if the students show up and just network and meet people. Um, there's also something called Elborn Village, which is um, a London-based website. It's also a consulting company, but they have a website that looks like a village. There's town hall, there's a mm-hmm. library, you know, all these different spots. And there's, there, I posted my research there. They also have job listings there. All these different ways, obviously, too, using LinkedIn, things along those lines. Ideally, just get out there and network and just try and meet with people as much as possible. And what can the average student, potentially someone who's not super immersed in the finance world, who might not, you know, maybe they don't know if they should be investing or not. They don't know. Like there's all these new apps and crazy things and like trying to get us involved in the whole Finance ordeal, yeah, (laughs) wherever that is. But how can knowing about and utilizing alternative investments benefit the average DePaul student? So, yeah, why it's good for them to know, and this is part of what I would tell my students, because for a long time I was teaching a Managed Futures course. And in fact, as far as I know, it was the only accredited Managed Futures course in the country, maybe the world, possibly the galaxy. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know of anyone else who taught a course like this. Mm. Um, In fact, I would bring in the regulators, have them talk about regulation, because also my students have never interacted with any regulator of any kind. So this was a good opportunity for them, because investments in themselves is not a purely about a portfolio. It's about a business. So yes, on the front end, you have a portfolio. That's your service that you're offering. But there's a back end to it, which is running a business. You have the operations, you have accounting, marketing, compliance, legal, all those things that go into it. And a lot of times students don't realize these two things have to go together. So most students do not know about alternatives. So if they're applying for a job and they start talking about this, I've had students tell me this has actually been really good talking points on interviews whether it's for full-time or it's for an internship. They know something that a lot of other students don't know. It gives them a leg up when they're interviewing. I had one student who was a graduate student. uh, He was taking my class. And during the quarter, he interviewed at this one investment house where they had primarily traditional investments, but a couple alternatives and one managed futures fund. Uh, They found out that he knew about that, and they started asking him questions, and he was hired. Wow. He was the only candidate that knew about alternatives. Wow. And and that's the whole idea of this, right? It, it's a growing area of investment management. You have stocks and bonds. Everyone knows about that. But you have alternatives that are less known. Hmm. So it gives you something more to talk about. Also, it, it allows you to explore more options for your career. So it's definitely a demanded skill. Yes. Yeah. There, there's a shortage of knowledge in the industry. Um, so the more someone knows about it, the better off. And how do you, so you teach classes here at DePaul. Are you still teaching the Managed Futures course? I haven't taught that since about 2018, but I was teaching from 2011 to 2018. Okay. Um, I'm now also teaching Finance 202, uh, Quantitative Reasoning, which is like Introduction to Excel. Mm. And I'm also connecting Bloomberg into the curriculum with that. So Very and I'm nice. yeah, I'm trying to do more with application in that class. Mm-hmm. Um, and also with data visualization. So it's not just about, oh, it's Excel and here's how you do these functions, but also there's charts and what do you do with the charts? Make it readable, make the spreadsheets readable, things mm-hmm. like that. Because someone else may be looking at it. You may have to show it to your boss or a, a client or a committee or something. Yeah, getting those real world skills is something that 
I think we put a lot of emphasis on or we're trying to put more emphasis on here at DePaul and like really getting people ready, you know, as prepared as they can be for the workforce as soon as they graduate. So, Professor, for you, after you get your Ph.D., what are your plans after you become Dr. Marshall? <laughs> Good question. That's still still trying to figure that out. I've kind of kiddingly told people, you know, I've become Dr. Mark. I'll have an afternoon talk show investing <laughs> with Dr. Mark and go up against Dr. Oz and Dr. Phil. But, you know, it doesn't seem like a bad plan to me. <laughs> but yeah, with the DBA program, it's really is geared towards applied research, which is what I've been doing for years. So it fit in really well. So it's definitely, it's filling some gaps in in my um, research skill set. So I know, like, just writing research, doing research, that's in my DNA. Mm -hmm. So that's always going to be a part of what I do going forward. Can you tell us about how you got into finance and what your career was like before you were teaching and then how you got into teaching? Okay, so I hope you got a few minutes. This could be a long story. (laughs) Uh, So as far as... Like finding or yeah, discovering finance, I really go back to freshman year of high school. I discovered the stock market. And this is kind of like, you know, days before computers are really out there. So I would take money from summer jobs. I was investing in stocks. I had graph paper. <laughs> and, and I would get daily newspaper and, you know, open it up to the stock tables. And I would chart 80 stocks every day by hand. I would spend time at the library and doing research and trying to, you know, figure out all these things. I was a bit of a news junkie taking all the information in, plus a little bit of a history junkie, too, because all those things kind of fit into it. So fortunately, I went to Evanston Township High School, which huge high school. They offered a ton of classes, lots of electives in business. So by my sophomore, junior year, I was already majoring in business. Wow. Yeah. And so I knew going into college what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to go into investments. I didn't know exactly what area. Initially, I thought, okay, equities. However, by the time I finished and I, you know, I graduated from here at DePaul, I knew I did not want to be in an office. I wanted to be on a trading floor. And a friend of mine had a friend who was clerking on the floor of the Board of Trade in the bond room for E.F. Hutton. And so um, he introduced me to him. I interviewed there. And I started out at the very, very bottom rung of the ladder as a runner. And if you're not familiar with the term runner, what it means is that it's a person who gets the order from the desk, from the phone desk or the wire desk, runs it into the pit. The trader fills it. They take the order back to the desk. And then from the desk, they report it into their offices. So it's a good cardio exercise workout. <laughs> it is. Yes. I didn't think of it quite that way. But yes, looking back. So it, it was really interesting because you, when markets were moving, you really saw it in that room. So I started in August of 87. So just before the crash of 87 mm. happened. So I was working in the bond room when the crash happened. I saw the aftermath of that, what was going on, the craziness that week. In fact, I used that example for my when I applied for graduate school, mm-hmm. right? So that was my paper that I wrote for for that. And and so yeah, I was I was there when the crash of 87 happened. And then from the crash, EF Hutton merged with Shearson Lehman. So then they were consolidating, moving people around. So then they moved me into the grain room in the spring of 88, just in time for the drought of 88. So I saw a lot of volatility in a very short period of time. And I started to realize, I love this business. This is so cool. This is great, right? And you just you could start to connect all these different markets, whether it was the commodity markets, it was financials, it was currencies, whatever it was. And one way or another, I wanted to be part of this. And so 
I eventually ended up leaving. I quit my job. I started trading from off the floor out of my apartment. Did that for a few years. I started developing trading models. Did that for about three or four years. And then I became a broker. I had my Series 3 license. And I worked for a few firms in Chicago doing that. Eventually ended up at the University of Chicago. They have a research center called CRISP, Center for Research and Security Prices. So I was developing a futures database for them. Um, While I was there, I got into the MBA program. And then summer internship in that, I went out to New York, worked for Morgan Stanley, and I was part of an internal CTA. So I came in there as a researcher, working for the summer. And then the following year, I, I finished up the MBA program. And they said, we want you. Um, so I moved out to New York. I was developing systematic trading models for them. We had about 300 million under management. I eventually became the COO of the business unit. I was also traveling around the country with wholesalers, doing some of the marketing and education. When I left there, I became Octane Research, which they invested in Fund of Funds. So Fund of Fund is a fund of funds, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So it's, wow. it's, it's one fund that contains several hedge funds or, or managed futures, whatever the case might be. And so, yeah, we invested in those on behalf of clients. We had about a billion dollars under management. I decided to leave there, came back to Chicago, and I was consulting. And then a friend of mine said, he, he was an adjunct here and said, you know, would you ever think about teaching? If so, you know, I'm doing it to Paul. I'll introduce you to some people here. And so I just happened to have maybe over the past year or so several friends that said, you know, you should think about teaching. You'd probably be good at it. I figured here's an opportunity. So I met with the chair of the department. I pitched the idea for the managed futures class. They said, okay, great. Now go write the course. (laughs) So I had anywhere from about 30 minutes to two hours worth of content from basically taking from what I used to do at, at Morgan Stanley. And now I had to change this into or expand it to 30 hours worth of content and uh, fell in love with teaching ever since then and just kept building on that. Yeah. It's such a crazy transition from, you know, being a runner to teaching. Like who would have, you know, if you just looked at the two endpoints, it's, you wouldn't believe it, but the whole journey was incredible. Yeah. Because when I was at Morgan Stanley, I was, I started writing. So somewhere around 2000 is when I first started to publish and that I got the itch for that as well. So once I did that, there was no turning back from that. Okay, and so I'm connecting research with writing, and then I'm using it for business development purposes, and then just kept building. That's it for today's episode. Thank you, Professor Shore and Hannah, for your time. Watch out for our next episode with more stuff you should know about finance. I'm Dumira Menezes, and I'll catch you next time.